Love, 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 love. Love, 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 love. Greetings, Wanderers. Get some tea, relax yourself, and welcome to the Return Cart. I'm your host, Chrissy. I recently had the honor of interviewing Lauren C. Tafoe about her debut sci-fi novel, Implanted. Today, we're going to give our thoughts and discuss a few key concepts in the novel, which got our brains a turnin'. And of course, in the middle of the episode, we'll listen to the interview with Lauren. Here to chat it up and give their opinion about the book are... Ahoy hoy, this is Terry here. Hi, this is Starla. And if, while listening, you happen to notice San- Sandra replace Starla in some Freaky Friday shenanigans going on, when Star is on the panel, she is phoning in from Japan, which is 15 hours ahead of us. So really, she's talking to us from the future, where people apparently are responsible and have jobs and still no flying cars oddly enough and sandra is a busy lady who is able to make time for us later in the show if you are wondering why you heard sandra in the intro the power of editing okay so we're going to talk about the summary of the book when college student Emery Driscoll is blackmailed into being a courier for a clandestine organization, she's cut off from the neural implant community which binds the dome shield city of New Worth together. Her new masters exploit her rare condition which allows her to carry encoded data in her blood and train Emery to transport secrets throughout the troubled city. New Worth is on the brink of emergence, freedom from the dome, but not everyone wants to leave. Then a data drop goes very bad, and Emery is caught between factions, those who want her blood and those who just want her dead. Okay, so this is a cyberpunk novel, and uh, when they talk about implanted, uh, I think one of the reasons why that title exists is because people have chips in the back of their necks that help them connect to the internet, and uh, they're able to, well, I call it the internet, but I don't know if it's actually called the internet. I think it's like the neural networking uh, kind of thing. But they're able to send each other messages um, using their eyes and their mind. Um, they're able to actually project their feelings uh, towards people uh, so that you can actually feel what someone else is feeling. So uh, all those kind of good stuff. Also, the city uh, in this book is based off of Fort Worth, which is in Texas. Uh, Fort Worth got changed to New Worth, and they are now under a dome uh, because the air around them is just so horrible. The um, crops aren't growing, all that other kind of good stuff. So that's the basic summary and the basic um, plot elements that are in there. All right. So now how we felt about the novel. I, I really enjoyed the the novel. It was a very interesting read. Uh, the author did a very good job of um, kind of immersing you in the story through the way that she wrote um, and through some of the terminology that she used. It really left an impression of where you were and you were very um, easily able to kind of picture that imagery in your mind as you were reading the novel. Yeah, there were quite a few times that I thought to myself while reading that it would make for a really entertaining movie, like the action sequences, especially the different chase scenes throughout the, the levels of the city were super easy to visualize and get caught up in. Yeah, um, I think the storyline is easy enough to follow, but it's not simple. It's not this, oh, well, that's such a throwaway plot point. No, the plot's actually pretty ingrained throughout the novel and and very complex but 
it doesn't leave it so complex that you can't follow what's going on. Yeah, that that's a very good way of putting it. Um, the storyline isn't throwaway. It's not simple, like like Christina said. Um, but because of the way it's written, uh, it's very easy to follow along with. Like you can, it, it's not something predictable. You don't, you know, sit there one chapter and you know get to like chapter five or six and you're like, ah, I already know the end of this book. It's it's already predetermined. Um, it kind of does leave you guessing at many points and really at a certain point in the novel, it's hard to put it down. It's hard not to continue on with that story because you're just so desperate to see what happens to the character. Yeah, I completely agree. And I'm also relieved that the overall tone of the book wasn't, to me, super depressing or hopeless, but sometimes post-apocalyptic books can be really super depressing. I mean, it has some darkness to it, but I think for the most part, People in New Earth seem fairly happy or at least content about their lives using their implants. Yeah, I, it starts out as this dystopia, um, but throughout the book, you're like, oh, there's there's a glimmer of hope for the future. It's not just always going to be this bad. Yeah, and that's kind of the whole per uh, the the whole point of the emergence. Um, aspect of the storyline. Um, you know, the, the whole point of going into the dome is that eventually you'll come back out and you can make strides to correct things. And you really get that, um, you know, just in, in how the book is set, uh, the different levels and so forth, uh, which we can get into more later. Um, but yeah, it, it, it really does kind of, it, it's not a completely depressing read, but it's not, you know, like you're going to puke rainbows when you're reading it either. So it's, it's kind of that <laughs> middle ground where you feel good at some points and you kind of feel bad at others. Well, yeah. And I think um, the story was the, the story and the characterization of the main character. So the main character really fits well with this, this plot line. And I know that's by design, but at the same time, it feels natural that this was the progression that it went. Yeah. And the character itself um, Emery is really, really, um, a strong character, but not overly strong. You know, she, she has a well balance of, um, kind of a sassy spark, but also a vulnerable side. And you don't often see that can, you know, together in a character or at least not as easily followed as it is with her character. Um, I appreciate that the characters, too, were mostly adults and not teenagers. I feel like also in this genre, they tend to be, I guess, maybe in the young adult vein, a lot younger. So it was nice to see some slightly older characters. Yeah, like uh, the main character is young, but she's not so young <laughs> that you're wondering why it is that this child is fighting it for this kind of stuff. Yeah, and they even kind of mentioned that in school during one, uh, not in school, in the story during one a particular part, they even mentioned, you know, she barely looks old enough to be out of school, which kind of gives you that feel that she's obviously above high school age. You know, she is an adult and all of the characters in the book are adults. And that kind of gives um, weight to their actions and what they do because they realize that there's consequences to what they're doing and um, the fact that that is actually stated in the book and, and kind of explored, that's a very refreshing thing to happen because oftentimes in post-apocalyptic dystopian novels, 
the consequences of what they're doing aren't fully explored or even kind of realized in the moment by the characters. And in this setting, it is. Right. And, you know, I'm a big fan of, um, you know, younger, younger people going up and, and doing stuff about their situation. But as an adult, it's nice to see someone around my age being able to change their circumstances too. Agreed. Yeah, definitely. Um, how did you feel about her introduction in the beginning of the book when you follow her along from the arcade to go uh, hunt down the scrapper? So admittedly, in the first chapter, if this had gone in the way of Emery, you know, fighting crime, I would have actually been very happy too, because that's where I thought this was going. When I first read it, I was like, oh my gosh, she's going after the scrappers who take implants from other people who, who try and, you know, cut up people's necks to take out these little chips. And I thought, oh, she's going after these guys. She could easily be a vigilante. So it, for, for me, I'm glad, I'm glad it didn't go that way, but at the same time, I would have been happy either way, I think. Yeah. I mean, uh, when it, when she's first introduced, you kind of get that, that sense. And again, she comes off as a very kind of aggressive character. She's going out there. She's fighting for something that she believes in. And, um, I like how you get the impression first off that she's this super strong, incredibly determined character. But later on, that same thirst for justice for these people, that same, you know, wanting to go after the scrappers and wanting to see them um, meet their justice kind of extrapolates on her personal character and why she feels that way and the reasons that led her to make these decisions. And I, I even kind of love that all of that, that entire scene gets tied in later on in the book and kind of is both her kind of saving grace and her downfall for the reason why she kind of gets introduced to the world. She gets introduced into the first place. Uh, I feel like her being introduced as this uh, scrapper hunter too gives her abilities later on as a courier more believability because in the past she's been hunting these people, navigating the city, fighting. So when she's later on an awesome courier, you're like, oh, okay, this makes sense versus like, oh, geez, it's a Mary Sue who just happens to naturally be fantastic at these sorts of things. Yeah, there's been so many characters who are like, I've never done anything physical in my life. And yet, pow, 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 pow. Yeah, right. There's there's no real build up to why the character has those skills or, or even um, how they came to kind of have those abilities naturally because you know i mean some people have natural you know talents but they usually don't extend across the entire board and um later on you kind of see that she has trouble with certain things and actually has um even a phobia of one thing at, at one point in time which kind of makes her her later on courier position very um kind of unsteady because of which um, and I really like that about her. I mean, a lot of vulnerabilities to an incredibly strong-willed character. And again, you don't always see them go hand in hand and kind of switch off interchangeably because at times you see how flawed she really is and how desperately she just kind of wants that connection and someone to make her feel secure. But at the same time, she's still kind of pushing outside of that envelope and not just letting herself go that way. Uh, what did you think about the side characters? I I love the cat. Cat in there? I think that was her name. 
like Cash oh, the was other a good career. character. Yeah, yeah, the other character. Cash was a great character. Um, also, her handler, Tahir. Tahir was a fantastic yeah. character. They were just well-rounded, I think. They all had their other motivations, and it made sense. You know, their their backgrounds made sense into why they were in the positions that they were. Yeah, I felt like these characters had lives outside of their interactions with Imri. I feel like sometimes in books, you, you feel like they're so flat that without the main character, they're nothing. But these all were very well-rounded. Well, you know, one thing I was actually pretty refreshing, because when you read a lot of dystopian novels, especially about dystopias that are trying to be changed by the main characters or anything, Emery actually didn't dislike the implants. She actually liked her implants. And uh same thing for other characters is they actually liked their implants. They actually liked the technology that they had. Yeah, and there was a little bit of confusion there on why you would want to disconnect why you would even want to be a disconnect and it kind of you, you kind of see that other side as the the novel progresses you kind of get introduced to that a little bit um but yeah it wasn't that she hated her society or she was even distrustful of it in fact she was very content and happy with where she was and even willing to go along with certain things in the novel just for the sake of kind of ease with her life, I wouldn't say that she kind of fought that flow very much. She kind of just went with this, you know, the the tide of things. And so, again, that's kind of different in post-apocalyptic novels. Usually the characters are, you know, they're fighting tooth and nail to get out of the situation they're in. Whereas Emery was pretty content. She was kind of like, sure, I'll, I'll do this if oh, I yeah. have to do it. I don't like doing it, but I'll do it. One of the things about the... The novel that I really enjoyed, though, was the setting of the novel, the actual background to everything. Because, um, you know, when you think of a dome, it doesn't really lead to a very compelling setting in a novel. But as you read it, the author did a fantastic job of making you visualize the differences between different levels and even describing the smells and the tastes and the atmosphere it did great yeah it's very unique it's very unique how it's uh, organized by height so if you're at the top of the dome near the sky and fresh air and sunlight like that's where you want to be and somehow living down next to the earth in the terrestrial district like people are desperate to escape from that situation yeah, what did you guys think of the world building that, um, I know we're kind of already on that topic, but what, uh, what, what did you think about all that tie-in? So there's not only just that tier system where you have, um, the social structures. If you're poor, then you live down in the dirt side. If you're rich, you live in the echelon of society. But what did you guys think about, um, the author's ability to tie all of that in and have this world? Um, I thought it was fantastic. She did such a great job of just breathing life into this city that it made me want to play in it. I wanted to write fan fiction, which I haven't done in a very long time, but it just made me eager to learn more about this world. I want more books set in this, uh, this setting. It was incredibly immersive. I mean, um, there are authors that can truly draw you in and paint an image of the world they're creating so eloquently that you feel as though you are just, you know, kind of flying the room. 
you you see everything you kind of you can even smell and taste it to a certain degree if the author is a is a you know good enough uh writer they will really make you feel that way and this particular author she did a great job doing that she tied it in she gave you just enough detail where you didn't feel overstimulated but not not enough where you didn't feel anything at all it it was the right balance well and with her writing she's very technical so she's very technical savvy in um how to explain uh the technology that she has in it as well as um her systems of government and her system of uh social classes so when i mean technical writing i mean uh very good at explanation and and being very information driven and what's um what i think shows through is her expertise expertise on communication because the author is a communications major like that's what she went to school for. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so so I think that expertise really lent its lent itself into this book. So and um I can't help but uh mention that it's not very often that we get multiple side genres into a book. So when we talk about genres, we're not just talking about science fiction or fantasy, because even those genres get split up into their own kind of side genres, right? So usually when you have this, um, this advanced technology, that itself would be the focal point instead of it being, oh, it's also about environmental issues. Oh, it's also about, um, blood couriers, uh, and information encrypted into blood. Oh, it's also has romance in it. Oh, it also has all of this other stuff. Uh, yeah, I really like the idea of mixing genres in one book because I think it's a good way to keep readers on their toes. Recently, I've been getting a little bored with some of the newer books I've been reading. It just feels very much the same. The plots are predictable. They don't feel very fresh. And I feel that Perhaps sometimes of just sticking to one genre is that it can become varied by the numbers. So you wonder which one of the usual routes the author will take to finish the book. But I didn't have that problem at all with Implanted. Yeah, in fact, the the ending for me came a little abrupt. Like I wanted more story. I wanted more. And that's kind of rare for me. And, and I read a lot of uh, dystopian post-apocalyptic novels. I, I've read so many. And yes, they're very formulaic, very kind of paint by the numbers type of thing with occasional differences, uh, enough so where you're like, okay, I'll finish this book. But with Implanted, I wanted more. Like I was like, at, at a certain point in the novel, you get to a point where you're like, I can't put it down. I want to see what happens. Like what's going to go on? What like, how is this going to go? And I found myself, you know, very sad at the end of the book because although it resolves itself nicely, I still wanted to read more. I wanted, it, it was like, I want the other book. Like, please give me the other book. I, I want the sequel. Let me see it. And I loved that I was left feeling that way, you know, just wanting to read more. Yeah, I felt with um the contents of the plot and the contents of this world building, we could have easily had an 800-page book in and of itself. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it 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 was a very compelling read and not to the point where like it just felt fresh and new. Honestly, it it felt like the first day of spring. 
you know, everything's out there, everything's blooming. It drew you in in such a way where you just kind of wanted to sit there. And even after I finished reading it, I wanted to go back and reread it just to kind of see all the things that I had missed. Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I think the publishers do a really great job of picking out stories that um cover multiple different subjects because as Star said earlier and as we've all hit upon is when you read these kind of books over and over again you see this kind of formulaic oh we know it's going to happen after a little while whereas um the publisher i believe it's angry robot is the publisher and they kind of specialize in this multi-genre uh fiction so i'm really glad they picked this novel up where maybe one of the bigger publishers or maybe um one of the uh, older established publishers wouldn't have taken that chance on this because they're like, too much going on. <laughs> yeah, by the way, um, Angry Robot, that's just an awesome publishing name. Just putting that right? out there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this, um, this was a great kind of, um, kind of a different kind of breakdown. I mean, it had multiple genres. It had incredibly compelling characters. It had an immersive background to the storyline, even without having the fantastic characters. It still would have been a very immersive read just to learn about kind of, you know, the background information of what was going on, but tying it all together the way it did. It was just a fantastic book. Right. And I have a question for you, too, because and I hope uh, those who are listening aren't scared off by this word, but the romance in the book. Uh, when I went to Bubonicon, there was actually panels that were talking about how in science fiction, there's still this kind of taboo of romance within the storyline. But I wanted to see what you guys thought about it in this book, Implanted. Uh, I thought it felt very organic and realistic. I didn't feel like it made the main plot take a back seat to it at any point it felt very naturally woven in so i really enjoyed it very believable i mean like starla said organic it didn't feel forced it didn't feel contrived it kind of felt like it happened naturally there was a lot of elements of the romance itself that were things that you could easily see happening in a normal relationship the the back and forth even to the point of rick's irritation with emery emery's irritation with rick the you know kind of walking on eggshells because of misunderstandings it it was very believable and it didn't push the book in a different direction it kind of just went naturally with it it kind of brought a better aspect to some of the book in certain areas. Um, but I, I liked the fact that it wasn't the focal point, but it's, it was still a milestone. Awesome. So would you guys be recommending this to any other friends or family? Yes. Definitely. Very good. Okay. Well, let's now get the perspective of someone who seamlessly weaved together different sci-fi genres and who happens to be at the star of the show, Lauren C. Tvoe. And looking back on this, I hope I've been pronouncing that correctly. You did? Okay, awesome. Um, we're primarily going to be talking about your book, Implanted. Yes. Um, so it's set in the future. How far in the future? You know, I had one target in mind when I was writing it, mm -hmm. and after this last summer, I think I'm revising it okay. so that it's a little sooner. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Very awesome. Okay, so it's set in a world where people live in a dome because the atmosphere outside uh, isn't livable. Correct. So s some combination of catastrophic climate change, 
um, warfare and um, desertification, all the things that kind of come packaged along with that, have uh, made the outside world unlivable. And so people have had to retreat into these domed cities to survive. Okay, excellent. And then people also have amazing technology in which they can pretty much like browse the internet with their eyes uh, through implants that attach to their neck. Correct. And so um, for me, uh, my background is in mass communication, and um, I've, I've thought deeply and long, long for a long time about you know connection and connectivity and um, the internet and how that's kind of changed our interactions and things. And so this world was a vehicle for me to kind of explore some of those ideas because I thought, well, if everybody's living in these domes, they're so used to being outside and it's traumatic to kind of be in this constrained environment, what's the best way for um, people to kind of cope with that? And so that's where I landed on having these neural implants that gave them all this unlimited information and access but, you know, a couple of generations later, what's, what's been the cost of that? Mm-hmm. And so another, so with information being massively available, there's not a lot to hide. However, there's this company in Implanted called Aventine. Aventine, Aventine. Okay, sorry, I'm horrible with pronunciations. Oh, that's okay. In my head, it's one way, but it could realistically be presented another way. <laughs> okay, uh, so Aventine... Um, uh, hires people, or rather kind of bribes them into their company to carry data from other companies um, across the city. Uh, so can you tell me what kind of things would be um, back and forth uh, in in their couriers um, and the people that they choose to have blood encryptions? Sure. So um, when everybody has all this really fast, swift access to inf- digital information, the onus is on then the security apparatus to make sure that those data transactions are secure. And my assumption is with so many users and this infrastructure maybe not necessarily prepared to handle all these users, there's going to be security flaws and cracks and things. And the speed of, um, that word that I can't think of, um, (laughs) innovation, Uh, (laughs) the speed of innovation is going to, um, make data security very hard. And so this company, Aventine, has devote, has, um, dev- devised a new way of transferring uh, information that's secure. And the way they've done it is by encoding, um, data to blood, um, cells. And so their couriers then get that, that encoded blood injected into them. And then they have a physical transfer of the information. Um, re- uh, resorting to like tr- more traditional spy craft mm-hmm. and um, recon kind of uh, techniques to do that. Right. And then there's something called the curdle that ends up happening. Correct. So that's a uh, fail-safe that they created so that um, basically if the information is not div- delivered in a timely manner, then there's this um, rejection symptoms, essentially, that the courier experiences Um which is basically where the 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 data blo- the the encoded blood cells are starting to kind of self destruct essentially mm-hmm. and creating this reaction in the couriers. So it's it's a way to tell their clients, oh, we have your data secured every step, and it also encur- encourages the couriers to do their jobs mm-hmm. swiftly and on time. Which right. in this world, you know, time is money. Right, and it happens like within three days. Some people sooner than three days. Um, for Emory, it was about three, mm-hmm. kind of ish. Like you could feel the symptoms at two. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 
One aspect that I found really fascinating in this book is that alongside with people having access to all this data information and being connected to everyone through their implants is that they could also feel feelings of other people. So um, was it kind of a thought process that that's how people are going to primarily show their feelings to one another in this book? So um, the reason I went that way was, you know, I, I was kind of playing with this notion of like telepathy in a science fictional kind of setting and, you know, trying to kind of figure out, you know, where the future communication is going. Um, right now, you know, we have Snapchat, we have Twitter, we have these... Um, text-based uh, things, we're moving towards more visual, and then I'm guessing, you know, video and all that stuff, and so I'm, I'm guessing at some point we'll be able to do some of these more, like, um, appropri- uh, approaching non-verbal kind of communication um, uh, signals to one another. And so, um, also, I mean, I think, you know, this is going to sound risque, but, I mean, if you look at um, pornography mm-hmm. um, and its impact on mass uh, adoption and mass mu- communication and um, technology innovation. You can see where um, you know videos were mm-hmm. adopted because you know of that part of the the uh, public public wanting that mm-hmm. kind of access to those kinds of things, and we're seeing it with like sex bots and things like that. So right, virtual reality. Correct. Into, mm-hmm. Correct. So um, I I was positing, you know, not that you know the, in this world that that's the primary application, mm-hmm. but that capability would become available at some point. So that um, and then the user can really define what they want to experience from the other person. So they have a lot of fine grained control on the types of um, communication feedback that they get. But, you know, if you have a really good friend and you're not there in person, you know, this is a way to uh, make that interaction more authentic, um, less prone to um, misunderstandings, as mm-hmm. you can see from like Twitter, you know, where <laughs> your people are talking um, at cross purposes sometimes because you're missing so much nuance. Right. Um, in terms of tone, in terms of um, context and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so with this development in that kind of technology um, in this world uh, where people can feel that sort of closeness, there's also this sense of very much disconnect. So um, when Emery is going on one of her first jobs um, and it's taught her in training is, and I'm so sorry, I meant to write this down, the rule of... Oh, digital recency. Yeah, digital recency. I wanted to call it technology recency, but the law of digital recency where um, because people are so ingrained into the technology that they have, they're not paying attention to To their their surroundings. surroundings. And do you think that that's happening now? And is that why you put it into? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. I have opinions about this. I'm not very, um, I guess, nuanced about that (laughs) but yes no so that was kind of you know like you know the the screen um phenomenon that we're seeing now like you know you go out to dinner with somebody and they're checking the phone or you know just looking at their phone as opposed to the person across the table from them and so basically when she's in public spaces everyone is interacting with other people they're just not the people around them they're the people in their head and wherever they are scattered throughout the city and so i um i really wanted to show that contrast it's not to say that people aren't or being a bunch of like introverted um, loners, mm-hmm. it's just that the communication has been de- decoupled with the per, uh, the physical experience. And what does that mean? 
Mm-hmm. And then um, it's it's very telling also the society structure in um, Implanted as well, that you're not going to have as much digital recency, I think, in the under um, stories rather than in the top echelons of, of that society. Um, and that's very apparent in the beginning of this when Emery is kind of hunting down um, some uh, people who attack others for their implants. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the implants, um, can you give us a little bit of a rough estimate of how much they're costing like today's currency? Oh gosh. If, if you can <laughs> at all. Uh, well, basically it's, um, I mean, it's like the equivalent of a cell phone, mm-hmm. I think in terms of just um, how ubiquitous it is the tiers of bells and whistles that they can have and um, how much of an impact they have on daily life. So, um, you know, cell phones can be a couple of hundreds of dollars or more. Um, and then you have the cell phone plan and then you have upkeep. So, you know, it's it's a significant LA of, of money. So I would say, you know, it's an investment. It's um, It's a tool for most people's daily lives. And, you know, there's certainly jobs now that we have where if you don't have a cell phone or access to a cellular network, you can't do your job effectively. Um, And so that's kind of um, a few, like an analog is kind of what I was treating it as. Um, Now they have the implants in this world have a lot more bells and widgets and functionality. But um, in terms of their um, status level and... um, uh, adoption rate. That's kind of what I was going for. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of bells and whistles, people could get modifications that worked with their implants. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of Aventine's uh, things that they have people do is have modifications to like, I'm guessing it's around the face. Oh, oh, those things. Yes. Yes. So, Where they can mask their identity. Correct. So that was, um, yes, that's something that works in concert with their, their implants. And it's basically, Stuff that gets implanted below the, the, the skin layer on their faces. And it's basically so that when they go through security portals, they don't show up as their own person. They show up as somebody else. And so basically it's a combination of signal masking and projection and other black box magic that I don't really explain. <laughs> um, it's all right. To, um, basically move through spaces, public spaces, um, as themselves, but the record, the official record will show them appearing up as somebody else. Okay. Very cool. Uh, so I was looking back at your short stories. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> and one of them, um, is actually set into this world as well. It was shown in the anthology of, uh, called Incarceration, which showed possible futures in incarceration mm-hmm. and, um, showed this character in kind of this work prison mm-hmm. um, where they worked in the sewers and, and um, oh, I'm losing the words for it, but they're working with uh, sewage from the all the city Correct. going on. Um, and I read something in there that was rather interesting that wasn't really touched upon as much in Implanted, but they talked about how you had to um, like have a certain amount of points to have a children, to have a child. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so this story has been um, in the works for a very long time. And so at one point, um, I had a lot more like social commentary in it. 
um, the book that got published was a little more stripped down in terms of I just wanted to focus on the communication and the dome city aspects mm-hmm. um, and some of the environmental stuff that go along with both of those things. Um, but, you know, there were some things in that previous version that I was playing with. One was um, limits on procreation. Um, you know, I, at, at one point, you know, everybody walks in, in the book. Um, and I thought that would just kind of signal subconsciously, at least, that um, that's how people are getting their exercise, you know, because mm-hmm. um, obviously they can't go outside and go running or something like that. Um, there's gyms and things and there's arcade scenarios that they could probably, you know, get a good workout in, but nothing, you know, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that I thought about that didn't necessarily um, make it into the final book. Um you can kind of squint and make inferences, but it's nothing explicit. And that's one of those things that I thought about, um, but didn't actually make the cut. Right. So, because, uh, um, with that getting points towards a child, one line kind of stood out to me is that, um, since this is the dim rank dark, which mm-hmm. is the short story is set for a men's prison. Mm-hmm. And he made a little inference to the women's prison yes. that I thought was particularly Oh my gosh, was, um, that, um, government sanctioned surrogacy. Mm-hmm. So is that what I'm thinking it is where pretty much these gals are being forced to have children for other couples? Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. I, but, uh, like I said, they didn't make it into the real book. <laughs> no, I actually thought that was very interesting. I was yeah. like, oh sh-. Yeah, no, there's, there's, you know, I, there's so like one of my partners was like you know you could take this idea and do all these other things with it and i'm like i know but i, I just need to just focus on this thing and keep it rolling for a little bit longer yeah i got gotta focus on one story at a time i just thought that was a very interesting yeah um uh kind of point into that short story mm-hmm. where it kind of I actually think a little bit enhances the book because I'm just like oh my gosh all these horrendous things are happening and, and you don't see that yeah because. And that's because of the way the communication is great. You have all this op- opportunity, but there is a underlayer that maybe doesn't get us as explored because nobody's looking at it directly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because we're seeing this through Emery's eyes mm-hmm. and she actually likes the implants and this. World. Exactly. Okay. That's very interesting. And so what, what, which one was, um, thought First, the short story or the the short story was a proto story in this in this world. Um, you know, you 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 build a world. You you and a, this particular world I, I built a long time ago, and I started writing a, a, it one way, and I decided no, I don't want to go that way. Um, and then I went this new way, um, which was the introduction of Emery and the blood courier aspect and all that stuff, um, because it it worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have all this stuff and sometimes it, it still can be carved out for other things. And so I, when I saw the incarceration anthology, I was like, you know what? I have this, you know, that I could kind of work for that. And that's what happened there. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, there's so much emphasis on, you know, your world and all your pieces of it, but you have to really be, I think, sometimes very judicious in ter- terms of picking which ones serve the story the best. And for Emery, it was these pieces, whereas for that 
when it was those, you know, if that makes sense. Right. Because um, plots can get very lost if the world building is so intricate right. that you just focus on that. Then kind of the plot seems a little bit weak after. Exactly. Or, you know, you don't want somebody to read and be like, oh, I thought she was going in this direction, but then it, it you know, it does this or, um, you know, or there's, you know, full of, you know, rambling, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you want it to be tight and hopefully building off of each other. Right. Um, so is implanted a standalone or is it going to be part of? That is an excellent question. Um, basically, um, it was written, you know, in a way that it could stand alone. Um, but I do have ideas for other books in the, in that world and, um, you know, We'll see. Okay, excellent. I look forward to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to hit upon, uh, you were at Bubonicon uh, just this past August, mm-hmm. um, and you were on a panel called uh, Embarrassing yes. Beginnings. And we, we, I put that in quotes because, as you guys talked about in that panel, is that they're not, it's not really embarrassing. It's just kind of this... Um, this perception of the genre is that you were a romance writer before. Correct. So is, was that under a different pseudonym? That was. And was it um, romance with uh, science fiction or fantasy? No, it was very different. It was historical romance. Oh, historical romance. Um, and that's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of a strange story, but basically I started writing a really bad fantasy novel in my teens, and it was horrendous. And it had no co- coherent world building. The characters were kind of, you know, you know, whatever a teen thinks is exciting at the time, which is probably very suish and very, uh, two dimensional. And so, um, but in writing that, I was like, well, I really like the kissing part. I really like the horses and the sword fights and the castles, you know, so I was like, hmm, you know, what, are, what other stories have these elements? And so, you know, historical romance was one of them. And I knew my world building was crap. Um, so I said, well, you know, I'll pick a, a, a historic time period. I will use the history as my map, essentially, for um, learning how to build a convincing um, description and setting and all that stuff. Um, so by writing that book, I learned how to world build because I was cribbing off a of history. Whereas now I'm, I'm, I'm cribbing off of, you know, the latest, uh, science discoveries and, um, you know, critical theory and, you know, communication theory and things like that. That, um, so, but that kind of gave me my toolkit. And so I'm not so much embarrassed by it, um, even though I used a pen name because it taught me so much. Um, but it's a very different genre than science fiction. So that was more of a, um, that was, not so much an embarrassing reason to use a pen name, but more of a practical in terms of branding and, you know, whether or not I was going to return to that time period again, which it's not looking like I'm going to, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, because um, oftentimes when writers write under one name, they mm-hmm. generally tend to stick with the genre or mm-hmm. direction of that one name. So mm-hmm. some writers might have more than even one pen name. Correct. Under their belt. Okay. Correct. Um, so can I ask you a little bit about your writing process? Sure. Awesome. Uh, so there's some people say that they're fly by the seat of their pants. Some people say that they're a massive planner and into the details. Which one do you fall? I skew more plotter for sure. Um, sometimes I will outline something from the very beginning. Um, not usually though. Um, what I tend to do is come up with an idea or a character, usually an idea. Um, and then start writing for a little bit. Like it's not quite a discovery draft because I have some idea what I want to kind of cover, but I'll write, like if it's a novel, let's say, and it's a hundred thousand words at the end, I'll write maybe 
anywhere from like 10 to 30,000 words to kind of get a sense of what my inciting incident is. I get a sense of my cast of characters and my setting um, and stop right there. And then I'll kind of plot out the rest of the book um, and then try to adhere to it um, till I get to the end. Um, I don't plot so strictly that I can't then change things as I go along. Um, I am a big believer in... Um, Uh, not coincidences, but um, what's the word? When things happen for a reason. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I know what you mean. <laughs> yes. Um, it's escaping me for a minute, but like, you know, things you didn't think of but are just perfect in the moment, mm-hmm. um, That which, which is like kind of a discovery kind of process exploration. A little um, bit of happy accidents. Exactly. Um, so I always want to leave room for those things to have the space to kind of come and then, um, you know, get to the end and then I'll kind of like, okay, do I, it, you know, map out my, my map it back to my structure? You know, am I, do I rising action? Do I have my hit all my plot points? Um, you know, that kind of thing. And then, um, you know, usually I have to change the beginning because, um, sometimes you don't really know what the beginning should look like until you get to the end kind of thing. Um, but that's kind of how I tend to do it. Short stories are a little different just because they're shorter. Um, I don't think I'm particularly a good short story writer. I just write them sometimes. Um, it's, 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 it's really good practice for craft. It's a really good format for exploring ideas. And as you can see, um, with the, the story you mentioned, the short story I mentioned, you know, I was exploring that world in, in ways that I didn't explore in the book. And that was useful. Um, as a way to kind of um, play with those ideas and see how they worked kind of thing. Very cool. And then, um, so with having a massive, uh, well, not massive, but going into the plotter realm of things, do you have like a certain word count that you do per day based on what you plot? Or is it kind of just, I'm going to write and see where I end up? <clears throat> yes. So um, I used to do you know, track my word count, um, but I... It, it took, you know, it was an extra step and didn't tell me a lot because I would usually, if I'm drafting, first of all, I write by hand. So by the time I would transcribe my words for the day, it might be a couple days later and, you know, it just got hard to kind of track. Um, I was also counting blog posts at the time, which I didn't think was necessarily the best um, reflection of my work and that kind of thing. So I, I don't track it uh, anymore, but what I tend to do is... Um, I go to the coffee shop and I write by hand for about two hours, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, and then in the afternoon, I transcribe or I do administrative stuff. So I, I try to carve out at least two hours a day, a, a weekday, um, for creative work. Um, sometimes that's um, writing by hand, scenes by hand. Sometimes it's taking printouts of something I've already typed up and written and editing by hand. Um, on the printed manuscript, but that's how I prefer to um, engage with the text. I was a, um, I worked in academia for a couple years, and whenever I sit in front of the computer, it's like I'm writing a memo or a report or a scholarly thing, and it's just changing changing the mode of of um, writing mm-hmm. changes my mindset. Okay. 
Um, so sometimes when I talk to people about writing or um, about books that I've read, sometimes there's a misconception of how long it takes for <laughs> books to be written. <laughs> mm-hmm. How long do you think is uh, around average or even for just for you? Okay, for just have, for me, yeah. yeah. So this book is a little different in that um, it's something I've been thinking about for a very long time. Um, in terms of the world, because there's a couple of short stories, as you mentioned, that are kind of set in this kind of proto-world that then became the world of Implanted. Um, and basically, I wrote the book as it, it's currently conceived, probably in about two years. Um, and that includes about six months of going back and forth with my agent a couple times to um, address some of her concerns with the manuscript um, when she first saw it. Um, we were debating about whether it should be YA or adult, um, at one point, um, there were some, um, subplots that, you know, we were debating about whether or not to include and that kind of thing. So during that, so it took a long time to get from beginning to end. And that's not counting all the time I spent thinking about the world before starting to write this book. Um, and then took another six months to sell it, um, in terms of, um, when it went out to publishers. And from what I'm hearing, that's actually pretty fast. Yes, it doesn't feel fast. Right, yeah, six months is still a <laughs> very long time. We're waiting for a response, but yes, it's actually a pretty short period of time. And then um, because it's at Angry Robot Books, who's a, a, is a, is a reputable um, science fiction fantasy press, but they are smaller, so they could put books out a little faster. So the that was like another year instead of like a year and a half to two that you might find it at the, um, one, of the one of the big five um, publishers. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, not, not, not all my books took this long. I think this one is hopefully, hopefully, you know, on its own. Um, I would say, you know, a year is probably in terms of for me to draft something and um, go through the editorial rounds uh, to get it the way I like is probably about average. And then building in time a couple, at least a couple months to go back and forth with my agent. So, you know, we're still looking at a year plus, um, in terms of getting something from starting, you know, chapter one to getting something submission ready. Mm-hmm. And so a year from when you sold it to when it had its publication date, mm-hmm. um, in that time you're doing promotional work. <laughs> yes. And that means going to uh, various cities and states and sometimes out of state. Correct. Uh, because I read that this was featured in the European speed reading. I did not go to, to Europe for that. <laughs> I was about to say, what did you go to? <laughs> no, I think, I think that my publisher made that happen. Um, they must have, you know, um, reached out to them and said, here's one of the books that you should to, to do for this. But that was very cool. Cause I was like, Oh, that's very cool. <laughs> Admittedly. I did not know that was a thing. Uh, well, me neither. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay. Um, sorry for jumping around a little bit, but going back to Bubonicon, how many, uh, was that your first time at Bubonicon? Uh, I think it was my third time I had gone, um, two times and then I was off a year and then this back this year, or I think that's about right. Okay. So Sorry. Oh, did it? I was rubbing up against it. So hit this. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Microphones. <laughs> uh, so your third time at Bubonic? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, and uh, other two times you were on panels as well? Correct. Very cool. Um, and then you're going to be at page one. 
in yes. Albuquerque. So on Friday, or no, Saturday, Saturday, uh, I'll be at page one with Rebecca Roanhorse, who is a Hugo, Campbell, and Nebula Award winner. Um, and she's in uh, Santa Fe, and we're both debuting with books this year. So hers came out, I think, in Jan- uh, J- uh, June. And then mine obviously came out uh, in all, and at the beginning of August. So we're going to kind of team up and, um, you know, share our work. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, and then um, I was reading another interview that you did uh, with, oh my gosh, I forgot their name. And I feel bad because <laughs> I'm kind of piggybacking off of them sure. uh, a little bit. But they talked about how yours is kind of a hopeful look yes. into the future, that yes. it's going into this back to reemergence, back into this mm-hmm. um, society. So can you explain a little bit more? Sure. About that? So, you know, I think everyone's having dystopia fatigue at this point um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but so I, but I've, I've always liked the sensibility, like the, 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 the kind of um, struggles that dystopias have, you know, you have this, um, you know, sometimes there's like a rebellion. Sometimes you have this kind of um, post-apocalyptic setting but I didn't want it to be all doom and gloom. I wanted there to be something that these people are striving for. They might, you know, things might suck now, but they're trying to make it so that they suck less for people later on. Um, and so that's basically, you know, the whole um, dome city of New Earth is kind of based around this idea of emergence where one day we won't need the dome. Um, and so they're devoting um, a lot of their resources to trying to repair things outside of the dome. And one of the characters has an active um, role in that in terms of trying to, you know, get the soil back in balance and replant and things like that so that um, one day, you know, they'll be able to reverse the effects of climate change and some of the um, environmental pollution and stuff that they're trying to manage. Um, and so the people inside the dome, you know, have ca- kind of, you know, this is their, this is their, you know, um, guiding mythology essentially you know um so a lot of people are you know always looking to see what's going to happen outside you know they can kind of see out the out the out the glass and see that like you know things are getting greener um you know maybe the weather is is um less terrible than it used to be that those kinds of things so they all have this sense of it's coming um it's just a matter of when it's actually going to be there but that keeps them sustained when, you know, the implants and some of the other um, not-so-nice things that happen under the dome um, can't. Okay, excellent. Um, so, of course, after people buy and read Implanted... Of course, please Of course. Do. <laughs> um, is there any books that you're currently reading um, that you're into right now? Um, I'm right now, I'm kind of... Um, I'm reading a lot of... Um, Fluff, <laughs> for lack of a Fluff better word. <laughs> um, I'm also reading, I'm working my way through Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Um, and I have a, a TBR pile that's pretty, pretty big <laughs> <laughs> at the moment. So, but yeah, usually, you know, science fiction, fantasy, some historical romance, uh, still okay. fun. I'm actually, Barnes and Noble just sent me a, um, alert that Monstrous Volume Three is available, so I'm like, ooh, I gotta go pick that up. You know, <laughs> that'll that'll probably jump the queue. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of what I'm uh, looking at at the moment. Yeah. Well, very cool. I want to thank you once again for coming and talking with us um, for our 
the Return Cart podcast. Mm-hmm. And um, if you want to follow Lauren C. you can follow her on Twitter. Correct. Um, and you have your website, laurencetafoe.com. Correct. Uh, where you can get updates and all that good stuff. Yes. So once again, thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Of course, we'll plaster links to her site and her novel on thereturncart.com. It was amazingly generous for Lauren to meet with us, and I'm thankful I got to talk with her. And, oh, God, Starla is morphing into Sandra before our very eyes. Hi, Chrissy. <laughs> Hi, Sandra. <laughs> Don't you laugh at me. <laughs> Okay, so this is the segment where we now talk about a little bit of spoilery stuff. We promise we won't ruin exact endings for you today. But we're going to be talking about um, closer to the tail end of the book. Uh, especially uh, one part I want to talk about was Emery and a couple other people enter the outside world outside of the dome. Right? So what did you guys think about that part? I love the reactions of the characters. Like, uh, you get to experience Emery's first time on Terra Firma. I mean, she's never set foot outside of the dome. Never even really thought that she'd be able to. And so her reactions to everything, but also still that longing for, you know, missing things that uh, she had to give up in order to come out of the dome. So it kind of gave you that, um, how, how she really does love and enjoy her society, love and enjoy um, how she lives her life, how she interacts with the world. Yeah, I did really enjoy seeing her reaction to being outside that authentic, oh my goodness, this is the world we've been dreaming of. And now it's becoming a reality, how it's that mix of feelings of it's both beautiful and astonishing, but also scary. But then also seeing all the other people who they went out with, how they reacted, very natural being astonished and being really kind of reckless not thinking about what they're getting into this world that's been off limits because it's so dangerous and the second they're out there they forget all that because they're so happy to be outside of the dome outside into the real world that they've been dreaming about for so long personally i would have loved to see that section go a lot longer to get more of that reaction see more of the outside world but again, that book was, it could have been easily two books, three books. And that was really my only criticism about this book was that it was so dense information wise. And there was a lot of thought brought into the world building, which I loved. But one of the problems that I faced was I wanted this to go on a little bit longer or for more detail to go on into certain point, uh, certain points of the book, which them going outside the dome was one of those points where it felt a little bit more on the rushed side to just, oh, well, all these things are happening. But unfortunately, some of the we don't really get to see because it's happening to people outside of Emery's field of vision or whatever the case may be. Yeah. And um, I, I have to agree that that entire piece really deserved um, a, a little bit of a longer section in that book. Um the people that are going outside the dome are naive, naive to the point of recklessness and negligence. I mean, they're openly courting disaster because they don't know how to interact with their surroundings. And 
I'm just going to kind of point out there in the book that is addressed before they even leave the dome. You know, Rick asked them, have you, you know, really informed and educated your people? And they say, yes, we have. When in fact, no, no, they haven't. They don't understand the dangers. They're, they're truly children trying to live in an adult's world and they don't really understand the implications of what it's going to go. Like, how are they going to grow food? Where are they going to get water? How, you know, basic survival skills that these people kind of take for granted because they live in such a structured society where, yes, it may not be privileged for everyone, but it's still kind of a security net. And once Mm -hmm. you take that away, people kind of realize what they need and how desperately they need those things, even if they do resent them. Yeah. um, And, you know, not only was it Rick who uh, was asking them about this, but earlier in the book, you hear of another city that tried to integrate their people back into this um, into the actual world uh, and they fail drastically. So my hope is that we get either a short story or another novel maybe about that place. I do think that because Lauren created such a well-crafted world where it is so complete, it would be very easy to have a whole nother book just on that city and what happened and as a cautionary tale and then tie that into the recklessness of the characters as they left because they did have that information, but they still weren't listening to it. That hope, that dream for emergence was overriding everything else. Yeah, that's really true. And plus, it would be nice to see uh, another point of view into this world because as I talked with um, Lauren and as we've kind of talked outside of the podcast is that in this world, we only really get to see Emery's point of view. And yeah. Emery likes the technology. She likes the life she le- leads. Um, but that means we don't get to see kind of the rougher parts of this world. We don't get to see, like, um, when I read her, uh, Lauren's short story in, um, Incarceration, I think it's the anthology, uh, which was about the prison system into this world, into new, uh, new earth is it's a, it's a lot more terrifying <laughs> than things that Emery brings up. Like she still brings a little bit of that kind of, um, horrible life aspect into it, uh, such as with scrappers and, her living in the terrestrial district, but there's not as much um, looking at what's going on in like their prison systems are in all these other parts of New Worth. Well, yeah, because it's from Emery's point of view, um, she she enjoys where she, what she does. She enjoys the fact that she's kind of gotten out of where she's gotten out of and she has a bright future. Um, but you don't really get to see much of the other side. It's just lightly kind of brushed upon. And even that really kind of deserved a more thorough going through because you don't really understand why the disconnects feel the way they do. You, they kind of lightly talk, you know, touch on it, but it's not something really developed. And so it's kind of like you have to take the word that this is actually going on versus if you would have come at it from a little bit of a darker perspective, maybe you could kind of see where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'd love to see that maybe come up as a topic in a future short story or something, just to kind of see that darker, grittier side, because you, you see that it's there, you know, that it's present, but it's not really touched on. Right. And especially since this is a book about hope going into the future, 
Um, and hitting in this genre of, okay, we've reached this pinnacle of apocalyptic, uh, portions, but now we want to go on and have human race, the human race live on into this world. Um, so what do you guys feel about this as a genre coming in? Is this bright new future genre where it used to be a lot of dystopians and, uh, everything's awful <laughs> and staying awful. And now it's, slowly going into uh, shifting as a genre of, okay, it's this dystopian world, but there's hope for the future. Um, I, I read a lot of post-apocalyptic novels, a lot of dystopian novels. Um, they're kind of what I like to read. Um, and so going back, you know, even three years ago, you had a ton of it in the media, uh, movies, TV shows, uh, novels, comic books, it, it was just flooded. And even though some of them took that turn, it wasn't something really widely done. And even when they did do it, it wasn't always a successfully done thing. Um, I think because we don't really go into the deeper, darker aspects in this book, um, she pulled it off quite well because you don't get that horrible sense of foreboding that you get from some of the post-apocalyptic, um, titles and because of that it was a it was a very nice kind of airy read versus one that's kind of an emotional tearjerker where you know by the end of the book even if it has a good resolution you're still kind of feeling icky about the entire read yeah i also enjoyed that positive hope aspect as well just to see how she crafted that this is a society that could be something that happens soon that not too far off from our reality it's very believable, whether it's the technology that's being used being believable or that idea that there is hope that we are going to overcome it and have that positive light so that you don't feel terrible at the end of reading the book and thinking about your own reality. Very good. Yeah, because, you know, the the one uh, dystopian that came to mind when I was thinking about uh, about the genre and everything was Hunger Games. Did you guys read, watch? Yes. All that. Yeah. Whereas at the end of that, where it just came this like this horrible circle, <laughs> where now the uh, districts were being awful and forcing children into the into that arena and everything. Whereas this book did not feel like we were going to go into a circle. It no. felt like we are now. It, it felt like we were going to go on from here. That we are making strides into actually f- completing the goal of reintegrating ourselves out into the world that maybe it wouldn't happen in Emery's lifetime, but maybe it'll happen in her children's lifetime or if she has children. Yeah, it definitely felt like even though there were some setbacks, they made some positive strides towards their goal in the book. And Emery was a part of that. And that was really what she wanted was to work towards that goal. Yeah. And I think a little bit of it was, you know, just freedom, not being tethered, not being uh, the one to pull her family up out of poverty, not having all of her choices and decisions made for her. It was kind of about her finding her own and being comfortable and confident enough to do that. Yeah, like, well, and at the beginning of the book, all she wants is this job that's kind of not great, but it'll give her enough money to be able to afford a place outside the terrestrial district and get her parents out of the terrestrial district. So it's nice to have uh, that she had those feelings at the beginning, and then it ends up as now she's far better off than far she better off ever. than she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of a Cinderella story, honestly. I mean, a, a Cinderella story where she made her wishes happen, but you know, still 
a kind of it, it left off very light and airy. Like I said, it, it was mm-hmm. a very nice, almost fluffy read because it didn't give you that foreboding sense. It didn't give you that way down at the end. Yeah, like there was um, tension surely throughout the book, but as as Tara said, just wasn't in this ginormous weight where you're just like, everything's awful and everything just sucks. And that's a huge theme in the post-apocalyptic world. I mean, it is very, very few have I read where I don't end up, you know, giving a good cry at the end just because I'm like, this was just horrible. I understand why, but this is horrible. And where you find yourself intrigued, but still hating what you're reading at the same time, because mm-hmm. you're like, this is just, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Ew. Yeah. Right. Well, and I, I do think Lauren was really good at picking the character to tell the story, Emery, because as we, we've been hitting on is that she did not hate her world. She loved her world. And one of uh, the parts in that world, which I really want to discuss because it's hit upon so well in this novel, is the law of recency. Law of digital recency. Right? That um, that thought process where you're so ingrained in technology that you're not noticing really the world around you and anything that's different than how you thought it should be you just don't really see yeah i thought that was a really interesting social commentary in a sense that lauren brought into the book but again very subtly because it's from the perspective of emory because the idea in that law of digital recency is that people are so ingrained in technology that they're missing out in the real world they're missing those connections and that can be something that Lauren sees in our real life that she's putting into the book and saying, this is where we're going. We're going to miss out on real life. We're not seeing people who are right in front of us because we're so connected. And that's what's happening in the book with the characters. But at the same time, Emery, who we care about, we're following her in the book. She loves that connection. And without that connection, she becomes lost. So it's interesting to see that balance on that social commentary of There's both a beautiful aspect in it, but there's some of those more dangerous pitfalls of what's going to happen if we're so connected. And I think uh, we see it all the time in today's society. Um, You know, 20 years ago, the idea of being able to FaceTime your parents if you're across the country or across the world would have been, you know, insane almost to, to be able to contemplate doing it. Nowadays, it's as quick as, you know, a click of a button. I mean, we have a very kind of instant gratification-based society. And because of which, things that kind of take longer and more effort to do, we're less inclined to do it because we have that ease and access right at the tip of our fingertips. And, um, I mean, we see it. When we need apps to, to help us meet people that we happen to cross every day anyway, you know, it, it kind of... Uh, points it out in a in a harsh light at the same time um we also see that people who are you know fully immersed in technology and they get cut off from it maybe not necessarily our generation but if we look at a younger generation you take you know a 10 year old kid that grew up having a cell phone a tablet internet access constantly at their fingertips you throw them out in the woods to go camping they're like what the heck do you want me to do like, why am I here? Like, why are you wasting my, I have better things to do. And mm-hmm. whereas, you know, when we were kids going out on an excursion like that with our family, 
would have actually held something of, you know, a positive reflection instead of, oh, well, you're disconnecting me from the people I actually want to be spending time with. Mm -hmm. Well, and also it's this, it's this culture of being plugged in all the time. And in Implanted, it's even worse because it's just a thought of a second of a thought. All of a sudden, the news articles are popping up and you can read about it like in no time flat. And that's happening now anyway, like with our phones and tablets and always connected into news stories. So um, what you see is in nowadays, and it was hit a little bit in Implanted, but this... um this need for like news cycles to get in the latest story without fact checking. And so you get that in implanted too. So not only are we uh, not paying attention to the world around us by looking at our phones is we just want to be connected to everyone at all times. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not the information is factual or not. Yeah. Twitter is, is a great, um, example of this. I mean, people tweet all the time. And sometimes people take those tweets at face value. Uh, well, same thing with like Snapchat, where where they said like, oh, these these pictures are going to go away. And then, you know, there's screenshots of Snapchats that are, you know, floating around. Yeah, I mean, it it, it is an absolutely amazing thing. Um, like Wikipedia, for example, some people swear that Wikipedia is 100% accurate. And I have to tell them that people are allowed to go on and change information, you know, according to to what they feel is actually relevant to the the article. And I'm like, so it's not 100% accurate. You kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. You want, you have to actually go a little bit further to, to get a 100% mm-hmm. accurate information. Well, and not to be an old geezer, but I'm being an old geezer. Remember back in my day when Wikipedia wasn't allowed on term papers? (laughs) (laughs) Where professors were like, do not quote Wikipedia. Do not cite that as a viable source. It's not one. And now it it is. Like, people who are in college or high school uh, doing research papers are now allowed to use sites like that for their their information. Which... I can't say it's a completely bad thing as long as there is that fact checking and sourcing within the site itself. But yes, we also have to realize people can change the information that's in there. And I think Lauren also hit on that aspect of technology and the fact that it is corruptible and the fact that the character is able to use technology to basically hide where people don't see who she really is. And also that dependence that Tara mentioned on being so dependent on technology that people don't know how to live without it. The second she's disconnected, it is like she's dead. And that is a huge point that I think definitely could be explored even more from someone else's perspective. Having another perspective in that world would be really amazing. Yes. So if you're listening, Lauren. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and and she kind of touched on that a little bit with Rick. You never really get the full story of why he was thinking about disconnecting. Yeah. You you get a partial story for his his reasons for disconnecting, but you never really get like what drove him to the point where he wanted no longer, you know, instant access to people, people feeling his feelings, people understanding his thoughts, even if it was on a restricted uh platform. Um you know, one of his friends comes across and tells Emery, you know, we felt this while he was going through it. You weren't there. We were. 
And um, so it, it just kind of, you know, looking at things from one perspective versus the other. With Emery, she, she did. She felt dead. And she was kind of desperate for that that reattachment because to her, it wasn't real enough. No matter how beautiful the world was, no matter how interesting and adventurous it could be, without that implant, she was never going to be who she truly thought she was. So, it kind of sad, but kind of happy at the same time. I mean, because she, you know, at the end, kind of gets what she wants. Yeah, no, that's really true. I like that. Um, so, close, closing thoughts on the book itself. Um, what did you guys think about the ending? Not giving away what exactly happened at the ending, but did you feel like it was fulfilled, fulfilling, that it was conclusive, that you were satisfied with how it ended? Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was a good wrap up for me. Again, like I said, I could see a lot more novels, but this story, Emery's story, I really liked how it all came from start to finish and wrapped up. I would have liked it expanded a little more. Um, it, it just felt a little rushed, like it came too soon. Um, the ending sequence itself was nicely done. I liked how it was all wrapped up and, and how it got concluded. But at the same time, for a dystopian novel, it kind of felt like it happened too easily. Emery didn't have to struggle as much as most of your characters really struggle to try and get what they want. Um, in her way, she did. But again, if we were to see maybe more of her friends' perspectives during this time or other people's in that environment, maybe we would disagree. But I, I liked how she concluded the ending. Uh, would have liked it a little longer, just a little more, you know, just a little more action in there. But um, it was nicely done. Okay. So I don't know if this is silly of me to think. And maybe maybe I was just reading too many romance novels at the time. But was anyone else a little bit disappointed that Tahir wasn't the, the love interest. romance interest? I was, honestly. Yeah. She, she had a better connection with Tahir than she had with Rick. It was a more intimate, more based on trust relationship because they don't start off liking well he starts off liking her she does not start off liking him <laughs> you know and he kind of just takes it with the greatest salt that he's like all right that's fine i like this i like this i'm not gonna admit i like it but i like it a lot so i kind of felt that way too i'm like this could have gone in such a wonderful direction i'm so glad i was not alone in that because i was like it's not that rick is awful it's just i like to hear <laughs> Well, he he fulfilled that like strong male role. Yeah. I mean, Rick was was your your clever geeky scientist guy, you know. Uh, and that's not to say that's not a, a completely lovable character, but I mean, Emery's pretty, you know, pretty kick butt. I mean, she she does what she does, and she doesn't feel sorry for it, you know. She she just does it, and I think that kind of you know, was deserving of a very strong male that could kind of be her equal in things, both on an intellectual level and on a physical one. And Rick is just kind of the intellectual level. And I think, too, with that relationship with Tahir, he is there as Emery changes, as she's growing from this person who just wants that normal job that's boring, just wants to make sure her family's okay, wants to take care of everyone into that person where she thinks about herself and she is strong. And part of that is because of that relationship with him. And so it seems so genuine, whereas Rick, great guy, was part of that former Emery where 
she was just thinking about other people. So I thought it could have gone that direction as well. Not only that, but he gives her a fantastic gift in this novel. Oh, yeah. I mean, he gives her the gift that she herself has been striving for for years of her life. And he hands it to her, not asking for anything in return, just as a gesture of, I feel for you. I'm going to do this to put you at ease. And it, again, that would have been another interesting plot point to just kind of expand on because that was such a beautiful moment in that novel. I agree. I like that one. I, I said, we don't want to give too much away because we want you guys to read the book. But it was a beautiful gift that he gave her and very worthwhile. Right. Uh, so one last question for you guys as kind of a close wrap for the discussion. If as long as uh, if Aventine didn't bribe you or blackmail you, would he be a courier? Yeah. That's- yeah. That sounds like an amazingly fun job. It doesn't sounds it? really fun. They would not have to blackmail me. No. I'd be like, done. <laughs> be like, okay, you're going to offer me money to do this and a place to live and eat and my health care? Okay, sign me up. Oh, I can't talk to my parents. Oh, that's that's bad. Um, <laughs> I can see them in 10 years though, right? Okay, well, that, that, that kind of makes up for it. Okay, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, they're going to they're gonna be taken care of. Well, then, let's do this. <laughs> All right. I mean... No, go ahead. Christmas or, you know, like the, you're, the best Christmas present you ever had, like opened up on like the 4th of July. You're just like, yay, done. All right. In an effort to save you all data overages, that's all we have time for. Just a reminder, if you are interested in picking up Implanted, which I heavily suggest doing so, uh, we'll post up links in the blog. Also, please send all recommendations for books or topics you want to discuss, uh, you want us to discuss on the show to the email Lost in the book, brb at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on the Twitter at the Return Cart Podcast or my personal handle, Lost in the Book BRB. I'd like to thank Cherry Hills Library in Albuquerque for not questioning our motives when we asked to use their meeting rooms for recording, as well as my re- beautiful Return Cart co-hosts for taking their time to chat it up. And once again, a huge thank you to Lauren C. Defoe. We eagerly await your next novel. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you get lost in the book.